Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yo! This is the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes, and I appreciate you listening to the podcast today. Man, I have got a treat for you. I was going back and listening to the stories that our guest has to share on this episode of the podcast, and I am blown away by some of the things that I was told. Now, I'm biased because I adore this man, but these stories, if you're a a sports crazy person, if you want to hear about legendary athletes and what it's like to cover them, this episode is for you. I'll talk about our guests in a second. want to let you know that this podcast is possible because of the generosity and the partnership of a guy like David Hochberg. If you are looking to buy a home or you're looking to finance, refinance your home, he's the guy that you want to call. He will break down walls figuratively. Although I imagine he's probably taking a sledgehammer to, to some drywall at some point. He will figuratively break down walls for you. 855-56-DAVID, 56david.com. You can go check it out there. Homeside Financial was an equal housing lender. NMLS number 1124061. We're also brought to you by Mazda of Orland Park. I've enjoyed the partnership with Mazda of Orland Park. They are a lot of fun. Shout out to Eric over there. Everyone involved. They've been a part of the crazy Loho recaps that I've been doing on Twitter with the White Sox. So I thank them for recognizing that there was a commonality and then us putting something together and working on a really great partnership. So I thank them. This episode this week, Steve Rosenblum has lived a lot of lives. He's done just about everything in the sports media business, doing stuff nationally, doing stuff locally, being on the front page of a paper as the, 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 in the wake of the news columnist being just angry <laughs> and, and, and righteously. So he's worked for both papers in town. He's done digital. He jumped to digital in his career. He's been a, a beat reporter in some of the most important moments in Chicago sports history. He's covered hockey. He's covered basketball. He's covered football. He's covered like everything that you want someone that, that has a a real understanding of Chicago sports. Rosie's done. He also has been a very important 
mentor to me in my career. He's given me opportunities to expand. Like he was really one of the first people that allowed my mind to open up beyond radio. And don't get me wrong. I still love doing radio. It's just that Rosie would be like, you could do other stuff. Like he actually took a look at the stuff that I wrote when I was in college and said, do you want to write? And occasionally I like to write. He allowed me to do his column in Red Eye for a little while, like when he was off. And I appreciated that about him. Shout out to Mike Kellums, too. He he's also was really kind in allowing me to do some stuff with the Tribune over the when I was really first starting to pop, I guess, in, in, in the industry. So I appreciate both of those men. But Rosie is the guest this week. Maybe we'll get Kellums on. He has a very interesting story, too. Maybe we'll get him on. Rosie still does the show, does the Wake and Bake show, and we talk about the origins of that with him and Mark Grody and various other partners that he's had in his time. I like those two individually. I highly recommend you go back and listen to the Mark Grody episode. I think those two guys have a, a wonderful chemistry. And a friendship that plays out on the air, which is the best kind of radio, in my opinion. But if you're looking for someone, if you're looking like at the, at my tree of, of inspiration, like where I'm drawing from, where, where are the places that I'm drawing from? Steve Rosenblum is on that tree, along with, you know, Steve Dahl and like Doug Banks. Like he's in that group of, of people that you go, okay, there are parts of what he does that I can take and apply to what I do. And with Rosie, one of the things is righteous anger. I never feel that Rosie is out of control on the air, even when he's mad. And that's one of the things that I try to do. I want to dissect a point. I want to take on a challenge I want to go after something and I want you to see my anger but I don't want it to be overwhelming and I think Rosie's one of the best that's ever done it in that regard like I really do like he's so good at being sarcastic and and really making you take a long look at what's happening he's very when he's talking about follow the money, you know, he's one of those guys that, that then gives you the evidence behind. It's not just the thing to say it's, Oh no, no, you should follow the money. And here's why I like his approach. And I've tried to add some of those parts of his approach to the way I, I do my thing. So I was concerned about whether or not, Rosie was going to be able to figure out Zoom. I don't know if he had ever done Zoom, but I was truly concerned. And I will tell you, I was pleasantly surprised at how easy it was for him and how he was ready to roll. So without further ado, one of my mentors, Steve Rosenblum. Lawrence. How are you? How are you? I'm doing great. 
cranky old man figured out how to zoom with you. Dude. Yes, this is this is um this is the easiest that I've had with someone of your age on Zoom. With someone of your age. What <laughs> age do you think that is, sir? <laughs> it's okay. I've had gray hair since my bar mitzvah, so I've been this age for a while. I understand that. I'm I'm, I'm starting to get the gray hairs. Like, they're all over the place now. Right. And it just adds to the distinguished, the the roll call that you are now. You are a roll call. You're a distinguished roll call. You think so? Yep, I do. I do. I'm, I'm... Quite proud to know you, given your accomplishments as uh, at several universities and several accomplishments. And education is the most, I've said it to a lot of people, most underrated, noble, underpaid, necessary part of our world. And people just don't appreciate it enough. And so kudos to you, dude. Thank you. I, I I, I try to take it pretty seriously. And my parents are both educators so that's probably where it comes from and their parents were educators so it it I, I also love what it does like being around the students i always feel like i'm a better broadcaster in the quarter that i'm teaching mm-hmm. if that makes any sense because i think maybe because you're kind of going back over the fundamentals all right you're the big fundamental <laughs> it's exactly it's exactly what i thought because the idea of it in in going over what you're doing if i were to do anything uh, in journalism and print about storytelling, it would be review the checklist all the time and walk through and see the mistakes I probably made years ago and to prevent them from making, but it would it would reopen a situation and go, oh yeah, here's where the pitfall is. Here's the obstacle. So I have no doubt that it makes you a better broadcaster. You've talked about wanting to do something from a storyteller point of view with students before. Yeah. Who are the best storytellers that you've read or heard throughout your career? I grew up with Vin Scully. He's the best. I listened to Vin Scully, heard him. I think Hawk Harrelson is a tremendous storyteller. But I think I, I think Vinny's the best. Um, I think that's what makes Al Michaels an excellent storyteller. He grew up listening to Vin Scully. And I kid Ron Gleason. You're imitating Vin Scully as well. Ron Gleason. So... I also grew up reading Jim Murray, who was telling a story in a completely different way. And what he did in influence, influencing me and a generation of kids reading him in LA, in the LA Times, he said sports is about people. And we're in an era where sports is about decimal points mm. and algorithms and measuring this and measuring that. I never shook that idea. If Jim Murray said it, it was gospel. Sports is about people. Put a face on it. A lot of journalism teachers and a lot of editors will tell you that. Put a face on it. Because it brings it, brings it something that people can embrace. Something that they can, they, they've seen before and they know what's coming on. And Jim Murray saying it was was very important to hear and then to follow that. I kid Bernstein, I call him Danny Decimal Point because I don't, I, I can't get away. I won't get away from the idea that sports is about people playing it. I used to, like all kids, we grew up rooting for, we found a team, whether it was a team my parents liked or 
their rival because I just wanted to be a contrarian child. But the, the idea of rooting for teams when I got into this business changed more there. They were stressing objectivity, but it's more because I was rooting for stories. Selfishly, I wanted something to write. Give me something to write. Give me a story to tell. So then storytelling became bigger and better from all places and not just in sports. I cited sports examples first and foremost, but listening to people tell stories. Um, Mike Nichols, which I, I, you know, this generation ha has no idea, but Mike Nichols directed one of the greatest playwrights ever, the Simon stuff on Broadway. Then he directed The Graduate. How did your 1960s go? <laughs> and I, he was part of, part of a group of people I sought out, geniuses, icons in a field I wanted to get into, telling stories. Nora Ephron was another. But the, the Mike Nichols documentary, he would say stuff that seemed, that just tripped off his tongue so easily. He said, you know, in the theater, there's only, there's only three scenes. It's a negotiation, it's a seduction or a fight. I'm sitting here a hundred thousand words into an attempted novel and he just reduced it to three things. I, oh my God. So that helps, but he was telling the story of how he got to that point. And um, Mike Nichols was telling the, the, the story of Robert Redford, whom he directed on Broadway in Barefoot in the Park, wanted to be cast in the Dustin Hoffman role in The Graduate. And Mike Nichols says, you can't do it. You're not right for the role. And Robert Redford says, but we work together. You know I can act. And Mike Nichols said, yeah, I, I know you can act, but have you, have you ever been a loser with a chick? And he says, what does that mean? And that, that, was, that was it. That was the difference. That was Mike Nichols telling a story. And I go, oh my God, he's just the ability to synthesize, synthesize an idea. And so people who tell stories with humor, with heart, with humanity, especially now, especially now, humanity is needed. When did you know you could write? Um, I think in all the way through school, grade school, junior high, we had to write some things and and I would just go off and write some stuff that I, I wanted to do. And they would, they, teachers would stop and it might not have been part of the curriculum but, or part of the program or what they expected, but they, they were encouraging and they were happy to, to say, this is now my parents, because they knew I had a mouth on me. They didn't want to hear about the writer stuff. I said, go be a lawyer, go argue in court that's where the money is my dad wanted me to be a lawyer or a dentist because my cousin was a dentist and he only worked four days a week and he made a lot of money and lived in pacific palisades dad i don't i don't want to do that i wanted to write and i wanted to cover and my father was the reason for this by the way because in la we had a bunch of newspapers most notably the la times which is the daily newspaper and then there was the herald examiner the gritty the gritty afternoon paper and it was a tabloid uh, or the sports was the tabloid. So my dad would come home and he'd sit down and he, and he worked, he owned a, uh, a liquor store. He'd come home and he'd read the sports page. And I don't know if it was a way of getting his attention, 
I think that's what it was, but I wasn't being paid much attention to. So I thought if I'm the guy writing those stories, my dad has to pay attention, pay attention to me. So that's what I wanted to do. I look, when I was a kid, I was a beach ball with arms. I was never going to play the game. I was never going to be in sports. I was never going to be center fielder for the San Francisco Giants. That was not going to happen. So the next best thing and getting in free was to be able to write about it. So that's what I pursued in, in a lot of different, in, somewhere in broadcast or print, and it ended up being mostly in print. Have you ever regretted not following dentistry or going into the law? No, no. I'm, I'm all about create the creativity of it all, and they the, just never had the lawyer stuff always looks good when you're watching. I, I used to watch Perry Mason with my grandmother. Have you watched the new one yet? I have not. I have not. I, I, it's worth your time. I'm sure it's good, but here's the deal. My, my grandmother knew in the first 10 minutes who, who did it. My grandmother knew what the bet, what the, the whole plot twist was. And I, I really treasure those memories and I don't need to see new Perry Mason. I knew the old one, but law school was never that kind of Perry Mason. When I was done with school, I was done with school. I graduated from USC with a degree in broadcast journalism. And I picked print over broadcast because it was more secure. How's that for a laugh? All, yeah. this, all these years later, it was more secure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely one of the things I want to talk to you about. But you're right about the the idea of the lawyer stuff looks good. Like A Few Good Men is one of my favorite movies. I see that movie and you're like, oh, this is exactly what. And at the time when I was in college, it was one of the things that I was thinking about that I would join the Navy, I would join the Judge Advocate General, have them pay for me to go to law school, and then serve six years in the Navy or whatever it is. But they never show you the tort writing. You know, like, you, you never see that part of it when you see being a lawyer be glamorized. But I do think, especially what you do on radio, that there are elements of being a trial lawyer and being a, a talk show host that do co-mingle. Dentistry, not so much. Trial lawyer, yes. But I think all of us do that. If you do it the right way, one thing I learned early on was if you can <clears throat> if you can carve someone using that person's own words, game over. You win. You said this, and then you did this. So you're wrong. This is this is you. You know, you lied or you're stupid. One of the two, and and we're trying to figure out which. And I was, by taking people at their word, that's why they said it. You know what happened last Saturday? Me and Grody are on the air, and we're talking about Ricky Renteria letting Dallas Keuchel go eight innings, 114 pitches. And I said, I don't get it. It's a route. Why would you? Why would you do that? He hasn't thrown 114 pitches since 2017. And here's what Renteria said. And we read the quote that he just, he felt pretty good. And we wanted to, he wanted to go. So we let him go. And in my head, I'm hearing Don Mattingly, schmuck manager of the Marlins saying, well, the shortstop decided we wanted to play through the COVID positive tests. And, and that's what happened. I said, and I said, there has to be an adult in the room. And then Mitch texts us, Mitch Rosen, the program director, director texts us and says, 
Sox person says they got two days off next week, so that's why he did that. And I said, okay, maybe, maybe not. But I'll tell you what, that's not what his manager said. If that was the case, his manager should have said that. So holding a, pe holding a person to what they say is very much what a lawyer does. I, and I, I no way attempting to, to parallel the two, but it does fit there. I just do what a, I talk sports. We talk sports and we try to make a case. In a lot of ways, writing a column, you are being a lawyer, you're trying a case. When you do this, when you are on going off on a point, when you are in, the, in a monologue trying to get to the end, you are making a case like a lawyer would, opening or closing argument, doesn't matter which. You're trying to connect the dots for everybody listening. And, and sometimes you use a participant's words, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you use the, just the facts of the case as you know them and you get from one point to the other and you have holes in it or you don't, but that's the way you build your case. And I think that's a lot of what talk radio is when it's good is this is the way I feel and this is why. Not just saying, this is what I feel, this is what I believe, but why, where do you get that? Maybe your foundation's good, maybe it's not. And that leads to more discussion. I've noticed over the last, I would say six months, maybe a year, that I'm now telling the stories of well, back in my day, you know, and, and specifically when it comes to dealing with athletes or coaches, I never thought that I would get to a place like while I was in it of romanticizing covering Lovey Smith teams because at the time it felt confining to cover a Lovey Smith team. And now I compare it with the 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 type of coverage that one can have with the Bears now and it was paradise compared to it. So let me ask you when you were coming up as a, a writer, when you're coming up as a reporter, what were the relationships like between player, coach, and media back then? What was the access like? Well, I had terrific access uh, because the idea was you, you learned how to work a locker room or a clubhouse in my world. And that was, that was where you got your ass kicked early on on a beat but that's also where you could kick somebody else's ass later. And I, I learned you had to, when I keep coming back to say sports is about people, I'll give you two stories. One is about Reggie Jackson. My first beat, my first major league beat in any sport was the California Angels in 1984. I got hired in the middle of the season to cover that team. That team with John McNamara, a cranky old man as the manager, and had some difficult personalities, but stars. They had Reggie Jackson, they had Rod Carew, they had Doug DeCensis, they had Bobby Gritch. Gritch was a great guy to deal with. There were a lot of people who could be difficult. They had Mike Witt, and it could be a very tough locker room. So I walk into the middle of this. I don't even have spring training to which you could really sit around and BS with people and get to know people and have them get to know you. You really had to show up and be there. That's the way the players looked at it. It's not just us bemoaning things. Players trusted certain reporters. They saw them. You had to be on the road. That's where your best access was. There wasn't a, a whole, a, a, a plethora of news people. So anyways, Reggie's approaching 500 home runs. 
I'm not going on the road for this trip because I'm going to get married. We planned this marriage long before I got this job. So the wedding was coming up. I wasn't going on the road, but I was responsible for getting a story about 500. We had to run it with when he hit the 500. So I had to get Reggie to talk. And my point was, I was going to go through all the, all the home runs, all the pitchers he faced, the home run years that he had. So I walked in with a legal tablet full of information. It was Thursday. They left town after Sunday's game. And I walked in. I was there at 3.30 when they opened the locker room, clubhouse. And I said, I went right to him. He was there. Guys aren't always in the clubhouse, but back then they generally were. And I introduced myself, Reggie, I'm Steve Rosenblum from the Daily News. The Daily News was like the Daily Herald. It was one of the smaller moons circling the... LA Times. Sure. And I said, I introduced myself. I said, I, I'd like to talk to you if you got some time. And he says, not looking up, just looking sideways. About what? I said, your home runs, you're approaching 500. No, I don't want to talk today. I said, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. And I walked away. Friday, same thing. 3.30, walk over, yellow pad. Hey, Reggie. I don't want to talk today. All right, so now I'm down to the weekend. Saturday. Same thing. No, I don't want to. No, no, I don't want to talk about that. So I got one day left. And my editor expects me to come back with a story. And I walk in Sunday. And it's Sundays, you know, guys may not show up. Really, this, this was the Sunday lineup era of baseball. Guys were, well, Reggie happened to be there. And I go up to him once again. I'm Steve Rosenblum. I'd, I'd like to talk to you. About what? About your home runs. You're approaching 500. And well, all right, talk. And I said, okay. In 67, you hit 67 or 68. I can't remember now. I said, you hit 23 home runs, but nine of them came off Cy Young guys three off Palmer, three off Denny McLean. And three off somebody else who I can't recall at the moment. I said, you weren't hitting them off slugs. You weren't, you weren't, you know, hitting them off bums. And all of a sudden, Reggie changed. He wanted to talk. Now, Reggie always likes talking about himself. But I had to get to the point where I showed, what that showed me was I could get him to start talking. And then I couldn't stop him. I went through, he saw my list. And we talked for 45 minutes in the locker room, in the clubhouse. And he says, I got to go take batting practice. I said, you know, I really appreciate all the time, Reggie. You walked me through the home runs, the pitchers, what you were thinking, what the moments were. And, and he goes, no, no, no. I got to take batting practice. Why don't you come out to the batting cage with me? We'll keep talking then. And this is Reggie Jackson, who three days ago was telling was running my ass off. I learned I did my homework. I came prepared. It was a lesson that never left. The most important lesson I could give to any student, be prepared, do your homework, have your facts in order, know your information. That, and then is the, it was the end of the season. Last season, they had, their angels had been eliminated in Kansas City. So the second story involves Rod Carew. And again, it comes back in my world to people. And we're leaving Kansas City to go to Texas, last homestand, it's Rosh Hashanah. Mm -hmm. I want to go to Temple. 
Rod Carew married a Jewish woman. He's now with the Angels. They're in L. And, and I'd never talked to Rod Carew. Now, Rod Carew had been grumpy with a lot of play, uh, reporters. And the Angels are on the verge of getting mathematically eliminated by Brett Saberhagen and the and the and Mark Gubiza and those Royals. And I said, Rod, I have a question. Just before the locker room, the clubhouse is closing. And he's tying his shoe. What? He's looking down. I don't even warrant the respect of getting a, a look at his face. He's not even going to meet me eye to eye. And I said, are you going to Temple tomorrow morning? That's when he looks up. It's not a question he expected to hear. And I said, I'm... I'm flying out early. I want to go to Temple. I, I don't know any temples. He goes, yeah, we used to always go to Temple in Texas. Friend of mine who would pick me up, he died. I'm not going tomorrow. Um, I said, okay, I'll have the hotel help me out. Thanks. And I walked away. So I took, got the early flight got to the hotel. They helped me out with a temple, took a nap. I get to the ballpark, got to get there early. And in Texas, the old ballpark, it might as well have been a Legion field or a high school field. You're walking down the steps, not unlike the way the, the Brewers Park County Stadium used to be, but and in some parts of Wrigley. So you walk, I'm walking down, going one side into the dugout and coming from the outfield on the other side, there's Rod Carew. And he looks at me and I, acknowledge him with a head, a head nod. And he goes, did you go to Temple today? And I said, yeah, I did. And we sat down on the bench, just us. And we talked for 45 minutes about Judaism, about his marrying it, embracing the, the faith and not wanting to go through a conversion, but not until he was done with his career for his own reasons. And I said, so, how did this, we got on the subject of his in-laws and here's this famous Panamanian twin in Minnesota dating this woman named Marilyn and he's never met her parents, but people knew what was going on. They, they were dating. The first time he's going to meet his, her parents is Passover. Whoa. One of the holiest celebrations of the Jewish calendar. This is the exodus from Egypt. This is Moses and the Ten Commandments. And here is this Panamanian man who is going to meet this Jewish woman's parents. So he says, I picked her up. We go to her parents' house. We park on the street. I go to open her door. We walk out. We're walking up the driveway. And mom and dad have hung a sign on the door, on the front of the house that says, guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, my God. <laughs> he filled it with such, it, he just immediately felt embraced by the family. It's a great story. And what I got from that, those two guys, so difficult to deal with. If you can find some human connection, you do your own work, or you have something in common, you can talk to anybody and you need to talk to everybody. I used to be able to go in Chicago, and this is not, I mean, when I covered the Angels, it was 84. When I came to Chicago and would be in the Blackhawks locker room, it used to be all you could eat. 
they were desperate to have the media there, even when they had good teams. When Mike Keenan coached this team, they were terrific. But sports editors didn't know hockey. They knew three, they spoke three words of hockey, Gretzky, Lemieux, and Hall, and that was it. So I could sit in the locker room and talk to Chelios, Roenick, whoever, and I would I would find great stories. I would have build relationships with these people. And and I I can't stress enough showing up and knowing people as people. And one way you're you're prepared. Know your subjects. Know what they do. Know their plan. Know that track them, not stalk them, but case their lives. And I point specifically to Michael Jordan. I knew his schedule. I knew what he would do. I showed up. That whole last dance thing, those 10 episodes of, you know, Michael's, it was the last, you know why it was the last dance? Because he said he would not play for any coach other than Phil Jackson, even though he had more years left on his contract than Jackson did. There's only one reporter he told that to first, me, a year earlier. And I wrote it before they played Miami in the playoffs. Michael Jackson said, if Phil's not here, I'm not here. And then they had each, they had one year left on the contract. Phil's last year, Jordan had two years left and he wasn't going to do it. And I got that because I knew Jordan's schedule. He'd pull into the United Center. I'd walk with him and he began to see me. And Michael also knew what I did. He knew columnists and he was really old school in that way. And he happily let me walk with him. He would tell me stuff and answer my questions. And he would, he walked up and, and I had planted the idea. I said, Phil's only got one year left. Are you going to, you got two years left. And he had got, he, he had to go in the locker room. He got pulled away somewhere, but he came out of the NBC interview and he goes, and he leans over as casual and as slick as any move on the court. If Phil's not here, I'm not playing. I won't play for another coach. Thank you very much. I think I have a story right now. And again, that was showing up. I mean, you, whatever, and that goes for radio. It's not just how you sound and what you teach specifically in your class and being able to do the basics and the fundamentals, acting professionally, but there are, there are basics, there are fundamentals of show up, show up early, stay late, know everything you can about your subjects so you can talk to them intelligently. It's built on relationships. So sports is about, in my world, writing about people, but it's also about dealing with people in a lot of ways. Access now sucks so badly. That's I that's what I wanted to, to pick your brain on. Like the access is so bad. Right. It's hard now to try and build these relationships. Like I, I joked about it on, on the air before we started talking that, Last year, in having Joe Madden, now the, the pandemic plays a big role in this, but I thought it was really important when they said, hey, your schedule lines up with Madden. He's going to be on your show. I was like, okay, great. I spend time at the ballpark, but I wanted to specifically start spending time with him. And the Cubs made that happen. Like we had, I'd known Joe since he had been here. But I didn't know him. And he didn't. He definitely didn't know me. 
And then I went to his office and hung out in his office. And after that, like getting an opportunity to see how most managerial offices are functional. They're just, here's a place for the manager to hang out, to have some quiet time. With a wine cellar. Joe's is decorative. Like it's like the most decorative managerial office that I've ever seen. And I kept wondering, because I want to try and build a relationship with Rossi. Like I want to want to kind of do the same thing, but you can't. You just physically can't. But beyond that, in other sports that we cover, the access has become so limited. How in the world are young reporters supposed to build these relationships now? I you know, through the Zoom age, I don't know how you do that other than you become really tight with agents and you have the agents set that up. Teams are under siege. Teams are worried about keeping you know, the team's media department. They can help. They, they, they will do it if they think it's in their interest. Agents will also do it with, in their interest, but you're, I think you're more likely to have an agent say, look, would you talk to this guy, this woman? Would you talk to this reporter? Would you talk to this columnist? Um, here's the topic. Here's what's going on. I don't know how you get around the advantage I thought I had of, of being able to sit and BS with people and, and have them feel comfortable with me. And that was really what's important. I envy your relationship with Charles Tillman. I know I, I don't, did not watch you develop that, but I believe firmly your relationship developed BSing in locker rooms during media days, maybe after games, but proximity you were there you knew your subject Matt you knew your subject you had a relationship because he saw you there and you could talk intelligently about it and it grew from there that there was it was not just the peanut punch it was what did you see on this play it was you had a chance to show you were interested and smart enough to be worth telling worth answering I, I was Don Baylor didn't think I was smart enough to I was worthy of an answer he was going to provide. I saw him working with a left-handed hitter at, I think it was spring training. He was teaching a guy to come. He had the hitter on the, his back foot was on the rubber and he was swinging downhill. And I, I've never seen that before. So when you see, never see something before you ask about it. And I said, Don, can I, and I waited till the end, Don, can I ask you about, and it wasn't, I don't know who it was. I thought it was Hollinsworth and Hollinsworth said, no, it wasn't him at the time. I can't remember who it was, but he said, I said, can I ask you what, what that exercise, what that drill was about, what you're looking to, to teach and what, and where did that come from? He goes, oh, you yeah. know, no, just, I wasn't, he goes, I, I don't know that you'd understand. Well, you, and you get those answers in our business. Sure. But sometimes you'll get someone to say, yeah, this is what I was trying to do. And maybe it can help me understand. And maybe it can't. This is why I, I was doing this or whatever. This is, this is what I hope he gets out of it. But Don Baylor didn't want to give me a time. He didn't think I, I had no relationship with Don Baylor. So the difference is if I asked, um, I don't know. I probably between 
love hate stuff or whatever, I think I had the respect of Mike Keenan. I know I did. And I could say, why, why did you do this with these two guys and this third winger, you changed this, or why did you play them against in this position? And, and he would, he would answer, but I'd proved myself earlier. Uh, and he would, that's an example we all have of guys we've developed. Even when Lawrence, I heard you say, Lawrence, 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 when Lovey would do that, he was still going to, it was coming from a place of respect, right? Don't you think? Yeah, I, I think it was begrudging respect, but I, I think that what you said is important, like being there every day and being accountable. Or when I did get something wrong on the air, being available to then have that, that grievance filed with, with, with Olin, you know, yeah, for example, right now. that yeah. sort of thing. Like you, you get FaceTime, you say, okay, well, this is what I was. And then the really, the, the guys that I found have been great dealing with in locker rooms. And it's been most of the guys in my experience, they'll explain to you why you're wrong. And then you'll learn something. And it's something that you can put in your pocket for, for the next time the situation comes up. The ones that are willing to go, man, you're way off. And let me tell you why. And then you get two or three minutes of them explaining how it all works. I think there's this, I agree with you that you have to be as learned as possible when you step into these, these situations. But I also think that those guys think, oh, well, you cover us, therefore you're an expert. And sometimes there are still things that you need to know. Like there's, you're asking questions usually because you want to learn something to then pass along to the listener or to the reader or to the viewer. And it's the people that understood that you going back to your idea of storytelling, that you want to tell the story. That's when you can get and build a relationship with a player or coach or a management type when they're out here trying to explain stuff to you and make you smarter, thereby making the, the, the fan smarter. Right. And, and I think your experience is similar to mine in that when you get a player or a coach who does that, you, you, you find that they love talking shop. They love to be able to discuss in football X's and O's or whatever, whatever sport it is, whatever tactics it is, whatever strategy it is, because that's the brain teaser for them. And that's their, that generally consumes them. And that's real interesting. That's, that's the, the chalk talk stuff of what, how, how they think, what they, what motivates them, what gets them to a certain place, what they see. And we try to see it through, through their eyes. You know, all this said, by the way, about showing up and talking to people and being there. And as things started, to change in the business I was in and with teams and with more media outlets for players and themselves. I went the opposite way. I went to almost nothing as a columnist and as a, a blogger at for Chicago Tribune.com writing, writing columns for print. I went the opposite way because a, we were completely invested as we could and, and more and more and more in digital. 
and I wanted to be our digital columnist. That's what I volunteered to do. I'll be, I'll be your Huckleberry. I'll do that. I want to do that. I'll get up every morning and write something for you, something fresh, something off the day's news, something that's not, even if it happened at 11 o'clock at night, it's old. It, I could feel time microwaving. Mm -hmm. Sports world, news world, all of it microwaving. So I was taken up on the offer. And I was, I detached myself from showing up. One of the reasons was this, and I, I don't know if other people suffer through it. You may be able to pick through opinions and stuff people write and come up with a conclusion, but I wanted to feel I could criticize anyone for anything at any time. I was not going to be a conflict of interest. I had been in a position where I had favorites, where I had people who would give me information. Could I turn around and, con and criticize them? I might burn that source. I'm not the only one who went through this. No, I've, I, I, it's something that I struggle with. I would say over the last few years, like not, I think about being a beat reporter and being covering the bears every day. And I, I loved it and I hated it at the same time. It's given me a career, honestly, and it's given me direction in how to do the job. There, right. there are times that I, I really miss the day-to-day -day of being there because there's so much that you can pick up just from an interaction. Like, this is not even you asking a question. This is you paying attention to what's right. happening in the locker room or happening in the clubhouse, and it gives you context on what it is that, that you're going to be reporting on. But I feel you on the idea of what happens when you get too close. I had a situation earlier this year where I got to be careful the way I, I wore this, Rosie. Okay. Herb, my producer, is, is well known to be a terrorist on Twitter. Like, he pulls no punches. He suffers no fools. He's a Twitterista. He is. And he said something about um, one of the teams that was pretty inflammatory. I mean, it wasn't wrong, but it was inflammatory for sure. Someone that I'm close to with that team screenshot it and sent it to me. And was like, what's up with your guy? And so then now I have to go on like the charm offensive where, where I go, Oh, well, he, he clearly cares about this particular subject. I'm the diplomat. Yeah, That's why they, that. they pay me the little bucks. And I ended up diffusing the situation with this person. But there are situations like this all the time where mm -hmm. I do think it's important that if don't throw a stone and hide your hand. If, if I go hard, and this is like an old school thing, if I go hard on a particular subject, in the time when one can go to the ballpark or go to Hallis Hall or go to the United Center, I would make sure that I was available. Even if it was just for the PR staffs of those teams to come and yell at me because that's what they like to do. Now they do it through emails or a text message, but I wanted to, I'm here. And if there, there needs to be a further conversation in person, I'm good with that. Not everyone is down for that level of conflict. And as I've gotten older, I found myself being like, do I really need to, 
to do it welcome, this way. <laughs> welcome to my world. And I, I, I went through that. I, I showed up and, and I showed up in locker rooms and, and I've been, I got thrown over a, a table by Tiger Williams, the NHL's all-time penalty minute leader. He wanted to see what was in my notebook that day. No, Tiger, you can't do that. Uh, I've been cursed at by Ditka. I've been screamed at by Mike Keenan. I mean... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dick and Keenan were my favorite, some of my favorite people. I've been yelled at by Jeremy Roenick, who's one of my favorite people. And I would do that, but I came to realize that I, I, had, I didn't want to cover for anybody i wanted to be able to criticize i mean your job as a columnist wake up and have an opinion and i had that even if it's somebody i like so i didn't want to be so close that i couldn't do that and showing up wasn't as important because to me because i didn't the tribune didn't care what i did they just wanted my work i worked for the chicago tribune and i worked for my community he wants to yell at me, he'll figure out a way to get a hold of me and yell at me. I work for the Tribune. They want me to have an opinion. They want me to file that. They want me to do that. That's what I did. And I did it to put myself in the best position I could to feel that I wasn't a conflict of interest, that I wasn't holding back when they were paying me to write as honest an opinion as I could. And if that required being away, Somebody, I, I knew the code of, wow, you write something tough. You got to show up the next day. You know what? I got to work for the Tribune, whatever the Tribune wants me to do. So here's the additional part of what happened and what is happening now with some people, what happened to me and some other people in the digital world that newspapers live in or trying to survive it. When I started as our digital columnist, or, or that was one of my responsibilities, I would make sure I was up by five or 5.30. So I could file something by 8.30 in the morning that they could post by nine. Because way back in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, people would get to work and fart around on the internet on their boss's time for the first hour. So we would see a spike in traffic at nine o'clock from nine to 10. So they said, you got to have it in by 8.30. We'll post it before 9, and it'll be ready to go. Okay. Well, then every other device, including the phone, you, we can get newspapers on the phone. So I started getting up at 3.30 in the morning. There's no way to go to a sporting event at night to show up so someone can call me an mf -er and all that kind of crap if he didn't like what I wrote. I didn't care at that point. My obligation was the Chicago Tribune. I'm getting up at 3.30 so I can file something by 6 o'clock so that my sports queen, Amanda Kashubi, one of your co-conspirators, yep. Amanda yep. Kashubi could have something to post at that hour because people were getting on the L and getting on the train. They were looking at the newspaper. We saw spikes at 6 in the morning. I wanted to be there for them. That was my job. I don't care what people thought, whether I showed up, whether people wanted to yell at me, 
whether people thought it was spineless. I know who my boss was and I knew what my boss wanted. And the first and only thing they wanted was something by six o'clock. Okay. This is how I do it. They were fine with that. Can we talk more about Jordan? Yeah, sure. One of the best relationships I ever had. I'm, I'm fascinated by people who cover Jordan. I started in the business. I started as an intern in 97 for channel nine. So I got a chance to watch the, the, the end of the run in 97 and then the end in 98. By then I had been promoted to a field producer, but I'm on the tail end of it. I was 22. Like no one was talking to me. You guys had already built up all of your relationships with those guys as they were building towards championships. So I'm always looking for stories about covering Michael Jordan. What was covering Michael Jordan like? It was, um, it was not unlike the way Steve Kerr would describe it as the, you know, as the, it was the Beatles. You go down the, the service escalator in New York. Everybody knew when the bus was, that kind of stuff. It was watching that, a macro view, stepping back and watching that. It really was. It was the Beatles and coming to America. But I was comparatively late, too, coming to the Michael Jordan phenomenon, the Michael Jordan champion, because I had come to Chicago from L.A., and worked for the national which was an all sports daily newspaper that started in three cities la new york chicago and then expanded and expanded it was a print failure of what the athletic is doing now the athletic has the right idea without having to worry about ink without having to worry about newsprint without having to worry about trucks without having to worry about deadlines you write it when it happens you write it when you're ready to send it that's why I love the athletic. They did the national thing. But back then, we didn't have the, the interwebs. So I came to work for the national. I got out of the national two weeks before it would fold. I got a job at the Sun-Times to work the desk. And then, thanking Michael Jordan and Mike Keenan, my boss at the Sun-Times happened to be a former editor at the national, and he knew I was hired there to write hockey. I came to the Sun-Times to make sure... To, to have a job because I was sick of what I was doing at the national. And then Michael Jordan continues his, his two peats. And at the same time, the Blackhawks go to the Stanley cup finals against the Penguins. Well, we had everybody on staff covering Michael Jordan and my boss, I was the assignment editor then. And my boss looks at me and says, you got to go write hockey. You're the only one left. And you're the only one who knows what he's talking about. Said, okay. I'll do that. So I wrote, and the Hawks got swept by the Penguins. I wrote, and at the time, we were looking for a replacement for Ray Sons. And I had been the guy scouting and suggesting people. And after, day after the finals ended, my editor called me and said, they really like what you did with hockey. Can you do this with real sports? And I said, wow. yeah, try me. So they, I took the columnist job. So by then, the finals were the NBA finals were just about to end. I wasn't credentialed in enough time and I had stuff to. So it wasn't until the next fall. Now the Bulls had won their second title. They're going for a three peat. Michael Jordan is to, to use again with the Beatles stuff, John Lennon saying we're bigger than Jesus. That was the Beatles. That was Michael Jordan. So I didn't know Michael Jordan, but I knew I had to. 
here's where I benefited by Michael Jordan being as old school as he was that maybe nobody knows, except people like me and Terry Bores because we're old. Michael Jordan loved print guys. There was a time there where we were, he looked at us as his social circle and friends because in some way he trusted print people. And we were there with him, we were there asking him questions. He liked BSing. We weren't, we were a social circle for him in some ways. And, and we weren't, we weren't unfamiliar to him. He saw more of us than he saw of most people. And Michael Jordan knew the hierarchy of newspapers. He saw my picture in the paper. He knew I was a columnist. One day during Bulls practice, where I'm standing there in a mob of people interviewing somebody, I feel, and it, it must have been September, I, and I feel hair on my thigh being pulled, just that. And I look around, and there's Michael Jordan. He just did that, and he walked past me. And he kept going to the locker room, but he slowed down. I go, oh, my God. So I went over and talked to him introduced myself, which seems superfluous, because he knew me and wanted to make sure I approached him. That's because he knew who wrote columns and what the power they had. I benefited greatly. I, I had nothing, I have no magical powers. The Tribune gave me magical powers of being a columnist. And I mean, the Sun Times, and that was that. And it grew from there. He would because I showed up, because I knew his walk in the United Center and the stadium and where he went, and I would be familiar. I would follow him. I would ask him questions. There was a time where on the score, Jeff Van Gundy called him a con man. He said, Michael Jordan's the biggest con man in basketball. He's, you know, he'd, 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 he'd knock you down, help you up, and 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 they tell you after the game, boy, you're you really playing well. You guys, you're you're an all-star. You're really playing well. And then I go out and kill you. He's a con man. He sucks guys in. I took the exact quote because I knew my relationship with Jordan. It was good enough that he would stop. I went to the Birdo Center at 7:30 in the morning. Not sure when he showed up for practice. Knowing even if practice started at 10, some guy show up early and whatever. I knew that I had a chance that he would stop. And he did. And he rolls down his window. And I said, I got to read something. And Mike Elzamore, the producer of the Heavy Fuel crew, had sent me the tape. I transcribed it. And I read it to Jordan. And Jordan says, fuck him. And he's, and had something else to say some other things to say, and then did his talking on the court when he dropped 50 on him and started pointing at Van Gundy because my piece ran the day of the game. And Michael Jordan didn't often let himself get quoted as being cursed or indicating that he had foul language and anything like that. He, he, he was concerned about that. So <clears throat> to get Michael Jordan to stop and listen, and respond. He could easily said, ah, but he is good and mad. And we we know the stories from watching the, the mm -hmm. last dance, right? It's not all of a sudden he didn't have to make something up. 
<laughs> he had a real thing. Real yes. Yeah. So, and when I talk about Michael viewing print people in such an old school way for a, you know, a 20 something kid in the, in the mid eighties coming to Chicago, which was really remarkable. Something you would expect for somebody much older, somebody from a different era. I, when I was writing these pieces for three years called Out Loud, it was a, for the Tribune, it was a Q&A, and I throw out my questions. I would just run the answers. But if I did my homework right, and did my interviewing right, I would get good answers that I wouldn't need my questions. I would just need to have the answers there. You see it in documentaries without narrators now. If the documentary is done well, you don't need a narrator. The people are telling the oral history of it. So one of the great places for me to go to get all these football season interviews was the American Century Golf, the Lake Tahoe Golf Tournament, the Pro-Am, that some quarterback wins every year. Jordan always plays in it. So I knew he'd be there. I knew what day he'd show up. And I had no idea where this would go, but I was gonna be there and I'd not seen him for years. So. He's waiting, I'm waiting, and I know he's gonna end up through the kitchen, and there's two security guards there and a guy from NBC. The guy from NBC knew who I was, at NBC Network, and he looks at the security guards and goes, don't worry, he's fine. And, and so I wasn't gonna get run off. And Michael had flown in on a fr private jet with a moderate shot. So they get limoed over to the golf, the, the back parking lot where the kitchen is, and he's walking in, he walks past me, and I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna provoke the cops or the security guards. And all of a sudden he stops, turns around, and he goes, Rosie? I said, Yeah, hey, how you doing? He goes, God, did you lose weight? <laughs> I said, hey. I said, Can you walk me into the locker room? Can we talk for a while? So he goes, Yeah. So we walk in and he goes and he says, I'm gonna go play. And I wanted to see if he'd sit down for an interview. And he goes, let me let me think about it. I got to go play. Um, we're running late. Um, I'll see you afterwards. So afterwards, I catch him coming off the 18th. And he says, I meet me over. I, I don't know if it's called Caesars or the Mont Blanc, but whatever it was. He goes, just meet me over there. I'll be in the high limit room. Come by. Or, no, no, no. He goes, meet me in the clubhouse. <clears throat> And I said, well, it's, it's okay. So I go up to the clubhouse and George is there as driver. And George nods, so they let me in. And he's got this area that's cordoned off. Ahmad's there, other people are, Annika Sorenstam's there. She can't, she lives in Incline Valley that they call Income Valley. So she dropped down on the back nine of this and she went, I think Jordan bet her money and she lost the first hole and won the next eight. I think she had the rest, the rest of the way in once she, she had no time to warm up. So anyways, we're in the clubhouse and he goes, all right, let's have a cigar. I go, wow, this, this is great. And he said, I said, but it's California. We can't smoke indoors. He's Michael Jordan. He goes, what time is it? He said, 530. He goes, all right, they're closed. And he lights up a cigar and he hands me a cigar and goes, what? And I thought to myself, it's good to be the king. We're sitting inside the, 
the, the bar of the golf club and we're having a cigar because he's Michael Jordan and nobody else is. And it was a, it, it was terrific. And he wanted to talk and it, it was part of, he goes, all right, tell me what's going on back home. And I don't know, and, you know, he wanted to have talk about Krauss and wouldn't do the interview. Just, you know, all the answers to this. I said, yeah. But I want you to go, no, I'm not doing this. Let's just sit and talk. He just wanted to talk. I was different. He goes, okay, I'm going to go across, come across the street with me. I'm going to go play blackjack. He said, no, I don't play in your rent district. That doesn't happen. But I did go over there and I watched him play blackjack and I watched players come by. And again, we were, he ordered some Opus X's. Mm -hmm. And Michael Jordan has good taste. And I'm watching him play and there's Pete Sampras and there's Mario Lemieux and there's Marcus Allen and there's, they're coming to greet the King. Now it's, they weren't treating him in standoffishly like a King, but it was, this golf tournament was old home week. This was a fraternity. This was homecoming for a lot of guys and everybody who wouldn't be happy to see Michael Jordan. And he was happy to see everybody. Cause again, he lived in this bubble and I was lucky enough to be, included in it and so were these guys these these wonderful full you know nationally internationally known athletes because michael jordan needed something more than the isolation he was dealing with and i i, I was i like i said i felt lucky all along and it was nothing i did other than be prepared to ask him a question that he wanted to answer you've asked questions guys you know they don't want to answer Michael Jordan wanted to answer certain questions. He's happy to talk. And I think that's another part of my learning curve. Players want to talk sometimes about themselves or about their team, but about their passion. They're usually passionate about their team or the game, whatever it is, ask them a question they want to answer. And then you can go anywhere because you've gained their confidence. And I did that with Michael. When I hear you talk about newspapers, I feel like I'm listening to someone who is struggling to looking at their demise. You've predicted it. You've predicted it for a long time, what's going to happen with newspapers. I don't think I was Rose Stradamus. I, I, a lot of people saw it. I did. It was one of the reasons I left. I took the buyout. I wanted to pursue something. They say every, every newspaper person is supposed to have a novel inside them, and I'm trying to get it out of me. And, and I saw it coming and I do, I look at it with tears. I, I see what's happened because it was so good to me. It was, a, and it was so good for, for society, for people read more than it was a place to read. And it meant a lot to me because I go back to the start of this. I think, I think I wanted to be that guy because my dad read sports section when he came home. I wanted to be the one telling him stories. It's awful what's happening in newspapers. Is there anything to be learned from it? Can the industry figure out a way to rebound by looking at past mistakes or has the train already left the station? I don't know. The, the biggest problem people have, the newspaper people have, is not really transitioning to digital. It's convincing people that their digital news is, should be paid for. Nobody wants to pay for news. They think news should be free. <clears throat> All these people who think news should be free are not giving away their trade. They're not giving away their expertise. 
they're not giving away, they're not doing their jobs for free, but they think the job I used to do, the job people dear to me still do, should be free. Why should it be free? We work hard. We put out a product in a lot of different ways. And we report, we have opinions, we put together photo galleries, we shoot photographs, we, we cover stuff because as your proxy, because you as the reading public cannot. We ask questions because you cannot, and you think it should be free. I didn't, how do you change that mindset? I've never heard a decent answer. In Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all have huge advantages because they're the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. They had a reputation going in. Tribune had a reputation going in. It wasn't global. It wasn't seen as an international, an international destination, a must read. We were a Chicago must read and transplanted Cubs and Sox fans in Arizona and California and wherever it's. So, but that's the limit of it. How do you get people to pay for something they think should be free? I keep wondering if, if there's a, like I look at it as kind of like the Big Bang Theory where there was this big, big, big expansion with data. And no one was able to figure out how to get ahead of it as far as like paywalls go. And now I wonder if the contraction that happens eventually, and I don't even know if this happens within my lifetime, but eventually is there enough of a contraction where neighborhoods, small cities, cities, neighborhoods inside large cities kind of go, we need someone to tell us what's going on in our and does that then lead to a rise in hyper local reporting like i know block club has, has been doing some of there have been a couple of other places that have tried it i think that there's something to it but getting over the hump of trying to convince people to read is is one of the difficult things in, in making it happen people will read they want it to be free and you're never going to make enough on ads you then you have to get them to pay for it. The hyperlocal idea is kind of a GoFundMe supported idea, and it is a worthwhile pursuit. That's how newspapers started originally, right? Or stuff on that block, and we are, in some instances, headed back to that. Short of a, a patron saint of of civility and a patron saint of altruism say buying the Tribune and using its all of its resources and its reporters, restoring resources, restoring reporters, giving, empowering them and financially supporting the Tribune to report on the city and protect the citizens, short of that person. And look, Rocky Worst was part of a group that tried it at the Sun Times. Might still be. I, I'm not, I don't know if he still has a, a piece of it, but they tried to do that because two newspapers, I believe two newspapers are important. I believe you need all the competition you can have. A one, But a one newspaper town beats a zero newspaper town. Indeed. And I think you're going to end up with a some kind of GoFundMe, some kind of, like you said, a hyper-local. They, AOL tried it with Patch, and there's still some Patch kind of reporting going on. And 
they're trying to make it local. I, I don't I don't have the answers. You get people are gonna have to pay for it. And this in this time today, as we're talking, money being as scarce as it is, the threat of financial ruin being maybe in the future being talked about, being threatened. I don't know. People are gonna lay out money for a newspaper subscription. Not enough. You've done radio for a really long time. You're, <laughs> you're good at it. Well, thank you. You're better at it. You've done it every day. I do it once a week. Yeah, but there were times when you were doing radio every day. You were doing all sorts of stuff throughout your career. What do you like about radio? I like the free form of it. I like the idea that you can, you're going to, you're going to have a discussion with somebody done right. See, I, I, I've told you this in private and I've, I'll say it again now. I think you're one of the best I've ever heard doing a solo show. I could never do that. No, I won't. I need a partner. In my world, sports talk is like the old Hawk and Wimpy White Sox broadcast. It's two guys sitting at the end of the bar talking hitting in their case. Sports talk is two guys sitting at the end of the bar talking sports. There might be some other people who join in. We've all been in a, back when we used to be able to go to bars. That's what it was like. People had an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. All right, jump in. But it has to start with a conversation. I don't want to have a conversation with myself. I can't do a monologue that way. So whoever I worked with, it's been a conversation going back and forth. And that is the way I prefer to, to do it. That's the best part about sports talk radio is talking sports, having a discussion, people can join in. And the, the freedom and the fear, there's no cursor. I'm used to working with a cursor. I can hit the backspace. <laughs> there's none of that. There's no, there's a seven second delay in case I have a potty mouth, but that idea of whatever is said is said, and then you own up to it. It teaches you a bit of honesty that I didn't know I needed or existed where you, oh yeah. Okay. I put my hand up. I'm stupid. I said that it was wrong. I'm an idiot. And you, it's not like old, you know, cold takes or old hot takes or cold, whatever it is. It's not like that. Cause it's more immediate and the textures are right on you. You know, the old joke used to be, if you want to meet new people, pick up someone else's golf ball on the golf course. If you want to have a conversation, make a mistake on the radio and the text line will light up. <laughs> it will be like Kaminsky when Louis Robert Homers. It's just, and good. It should be. We're not, I'm not, I've known people in our business, in the radio business, <clears throat> who think they're above mistakes and you cannot criticize them. And it's like, you are so full of crap. You are the worst thing about this business that you think you can't be wrong. And when you're wrong, there's a certain joy as long as you can laugh at yourself. I mean, that's what Saturday suckage is. We we suck so you don't have to. We we know we're gonna make mistakes. We know stuff is gonna go wrong. And it it could be anything we're just using the wrong word to be completely off on an opinion or oh, I missed that fact. But it's what we do. And it's and it's entertainment. You know this. <clears throat> this is not that's why I, I said. I cling to the idea 
in whatever, if I were to go back to print, sports is about people because it's entertainment. People are entertaining. Sports talk needs to be entertaining. It can't be a recitation of algorithms. It can't be a recitation of decimal points. I don't like that. That's not fun. Talking about people, learning about people, um, shaping things, talking about a way a person thinks. And it doesn't always have to be. We do a lot of mom talk on our show, me and Grody and the Saturday Second Show, between his mom and now Trash Panda producer Adam Stadzinski, his mom and whatever the moms are. Tom Thayer told a story about his mom. I don't know if you heard this. This is, I love the mom stories. I was telling Tom when I hosted with him that his brother Rick is the real hero in the Thayer family because me and Espo did a remote from a Joliet Sears and Rick brought us sandwiches and chicken soup because we were talking about the Thayer family deli. And I said, that chicken soup is excellent. And he says his mother's recipe for decades and decades and decades, and she would make it. And she said, when she was in hospice, and this was clearly her last days, and Tom wants to visit with her, and he sits down, and she's talking, and she says, Tom, when you make the chicken soup, find chickens with big thighs. That's where the flavor is. <laughs> Tell me sports isn't about people when you hear stories like that. That is tough so, notch. Right. So we get that on, on radio and because it was spontaneous, it was, it made it all the better. You know that when something happens, that's where the magic is of us doing radio and you can flame just as quickly. But when you get something like that, a mom story, Grody imitates his mom sending, sending his dad, Gary down to the jewels to pick up the, and whatever. That's really, that's such a, People can relate to that, and that's entertainment, and that's what we're doing. That's what it should be. We're passing time. People are, I don't know what, what they're doing. Maybe they're doing laundry. Maybe they're driving. Maybe they're doing yard work, and they got their headphones on. But you know people are doing something else. They're not sitting staring at the radio, so it needs to be entertaining. That's what we try to do. You've broken down a bunch of different pieces that you've done on incredible athletes. What's your favorite piece that you've written? I wrote 3,000 words on 17 seconds. Now, I've done a lot. I interviewed Ben Affleck at the World Series of Poker about sports. And because he was all over sports at that time, and it was in the early 2000s. And he's and I talked, I cornered him in a bathroom, you should pardon the phrase. And I said, I want to talk to you. Here's what I do. And it was for an out loud. But he gets to the end and I, and he had just, I said, and, and he had talked about putting Carlton Fist in the home run in there, in the in Goodwill Hunting. He said, Matt and I got to put our childhood in there. Do you know how what a thrill that was? So it, it's just all sorts of wonderful stuff by talking to people. And I said, okay, I can't, and he talked about heartbreak as a Red Sox fan. And I said, I can't end this interview without, he goes, Geely? I said, yeah. He goes, it was spectacular in a Bill Buckner kind of way. And that, and I go, this is gold. It's gold, Jerry, it's gold. So talking to all these people, whether it's it's Henry Aaron or Roger Clemens or Ben Affleck or so many of the Super Bowl bears for the 20th anniversary of Super Bowl 20 and being able to meet these people and talk to them and write about people. 
my boss might tell him when the when the Hawks won the Cup in 2013 in Game Six, and they scored two goals in 17 seconds to come back from a two to one deficit to go up three to two. The only time I have ever seen both teams pull their goalie at the end of the game. And he said, here's what I it happened in the middle of the week. He goes, here's your assignment. I want you to break down every nanosecond of what happened. Tell me a story. You have as much space as you want. And I said, BS. He goes, no, you do. You write it until I, my saying was always, I'm going to, I'm going to write it until it's done. He goes, yeah, write it until it's done. I don't care how long it is. And we ran every frame of, I think it was a Brian Casella. I can't remember who the photographer is. That's awful of me. We ran every frame shot during those 17 seconds of our photographers. And I ended up writing 3000 words on 17 seconds. And I got to write it until it was done. And even when I thought it was done, I added something and I said, can I do this? And Mike said, yeah. Or Mike Sansoni on the desk said, yeah, we can take that. We'll do this. You got it. I thought it was going to go into the business section right behind it. It kept going and going. And I was able to write a, a story nobody else, not that nobody else could have written it. You can write it in the internet age, but in newspapers, almost nobody gets that kind of space without a lot of planning or a special section. And Kellum said, we've never seen this before do it justice and i know you will and it was one of the best things the best thing i probably ever wrote after one of the my favorite things was i wrote similar to 17 seconds this 3000 words i was at a Sox game a random Sox game it happened to be the red Sox. pedro's pitching hey this will be good bases loaded Bottom of the fifth, Pedro against Frank Thomas and no place to put him. And I wrote down every single detail of that at bat. And then I wrote every single detail of that at bat, abutted by quotes at every turn. Pedro wasn't talking to the media. He hated the Boston media, so he wasn't talking to anybody. But Jason Veritek stood in for him. There was Frank and there was Jason Veritek. Pitch, the way he stood on the mound, the way Frank dug in, the way Frank fouled one off, what Veritek was thinking, the way they were, what was he looking at? And I think I wrote a thousand words on one at bat. And it was so good to have the space to do that and to have the opportunity and the encouragement of my editor to do that. So I think 17 seconds and then the at bat was was, I mean, it's Frank and Pedro. Come on, you're talking about pitcher of his era, right? Arguably. The right-handed hitter, certainly, of his era, the best right-handed hitter. And here they are. There's no place to put him. Bases loaded. Frank's part. Come on. Frank struck out. Sorry. Spoiler alert. So those are the two things that I, I've done. had other assignments, whether it's covering Super Bowl or Stanley Cup Finals or NBA Finals, and being the relationships I had with people. But for the pure act of writing and telling a story, which is what I got into this, I found I wanted to do in this, those two pieces uh, were the most fun. 
because they were most satisfying. Rosie, I appreciate you being as generous with your time as you have been. And this is phenomenal. These stories are amazing. I thank you for giving me far more time than I deserve. Oh, I'm please. Thankful. I'm thankful you asked. I love chatting with you. And uh, I think you're a wonderful. If you do a terrific job. And again, to backwards where I started, the fact that you are, you reek of education and smarts. I'm very proud to know you. I feel the same way. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Say hi to everybody I like. I know, I know. I She's right down the hallway. I'll make sure right. that I, I, I say hello <laughs> to her because I know that you like her more than you like me, and that's totally fine. I don't know. I, I adore you both. Close like Starsky and Hutch. Stick to clutch. Dare I squeeze three at your cherry M3. Bang every MC busily. <laughs> I couldn't not. I couldn't. I'm, I'm so happy that you blessed the podcast with some lyrics because it wouldn't have been an interview with you if you did not. Here we go. We're done. So let me let you in on the inside gag that's happening there. Whenever I would do hits as a Bears reporter back in the day on Rosie's show on the weekend or whenever I would have Rosie on my show, we would spit lyrics at each other at the end it's it's like our own personal language usually it's notorious big as you heard there i would often do beastie boys back and i just adore him i i truly adore steve rosenblum if you look at the picture the thumbnail for this episode it's actually a picture of the four of us me, Rosie, Luscious, and Mel. He loves Mel. That's what was he was referencing at the end. Melissa was his producer for a really long time. So he he loves him some some Mel Michaels. <laughs> and and he says it all the time when we have the opportunity to talk, and she loves him too. But he's just great. I would I would put him in the category of definitely he's in the category of mentors for me. I would also say beyond being a mentor, he was an advocate for me. And I think that's even more impressive. That's even more needed. It's even more special to have people that are willing to lend their credibility in a particular forum or profession to say, hey, this, this kid, he can do some things. He can do some things. I I would liken it to, it's not a perfect comp, but it's pretty close. You probably don't even know this, but I'll give props to two of the guys that, that I really love too. Barry Rosner has done the same thing that Rosie has done for me or had done for me with Russell Dorsey. Very much like I, from talking to Russ, he feels similarly about Barry that I feel about Rosie. When people get the get an opportunity to take the time to get to know you, know you what you're about, know how you want to conduct business, know what your goals are and are invested in your goals. When those people, you find those people, don't let go of them. 
because they will be helpful throughout your entire journey, your entire journey in this business. And I think more than ever right now, that's something that we could all do a better job of. I try to, I try, I think that I'm pretty good at mentoring. I could probably be better at advocating. So I'll try to use that lesson from Rosie. He's, He's a crazy person. And I mean that in the best possible way that he's a crazy person. And I, I look forward to, he's one of those people and I, I'll put Barry in this category too. He's one of those people that every time I see them, I'm instantly made happier just to see him because I know I'm going to get something fun, something funny. If they're on deadline, you, you get all sorts of stuff. And their perspective is incredible. These stories that Rosie told, I remember after I had finished the interview, we did this weeks ago, but I remember after I did the interview, I wanted to call Shakia Taylor and I should have, I should have called her. Shout out to Shake. Because she loves Reggie Jackson and she's written these beautiful stories about Reggie Jackson. I'm like, I'm sitting here listening to Rosie going, you know who loved this? Shakia Taylor would love hearing these stories about Reggie Jackson. I love guys that have been in locker rooms. It's not a diss to people who haven't spent their career in them, but I I do love guys that have been in locker rooms, reporters that have been in locker rooms because they have stories. They have stories like that. That access is going away in media, and it concerns me. Right now, there's not a lot that can be done because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but even simple stuff becomes more difficult. Like I'll give you a perfect example. Being in the pandemic and having the bears press conferences be via zoom. I can now jump into those. Like I I can't get to Hallis hall within the time constraints of, when they do their media sessions and when I do the radio show, I can't be there. So in one aspect, it is cool that I get the opportunity to be a part of the press conferences, even if it's as a voyeur. My issue is, is that they pretty much only take questions from the beat reporters. And I understand that hierarchy as someone who used to be a beat reporter. I get it. I do think that those those reporters should get first crack at it. But if someone else, if if I show up in a press conference or let's say Peggy pops up in a press conference to do something like she's doing a special for Channel 5, there should be enough room to have our questions asked as well. If a columnist wants to ask a question, that should be allowed. And in real life press conferences, those who know, know, like I would never, like probably the first four or five questions, I would let the beat reporters ask those questions. They're there every day. They have a job to do and I respect the job that they do. But then after that, there might be some bigger picture issues that you might want to hear a coach or a player on. And with Negi, I actually have talked to a couple beat reporters about this. They've, they're upset with 
Bears PR being in charge of when Nagy stops answering questions. Because if it were an in-the-room press conference, Nagy would go on for a little while. He's not one of these dudes that holds hour-long press conferences, but he's willing to talk. And this is just giving teams a device to have their to to be able to control their messages even easier even in a more easier way so I love when I I get the opportunity to talk with reporters who've covered locker rooms like Peggy like Rosner like Rosner's stories about covering those those 80s and 90s Cubs teams is unbelievable go back and listen to the episode with Barry Rosner it's one of the first ones I think it's 14 or 15, somewhere around there. Go back and listen to that episode. He's got stories for days. And he did tell me that he is willing to come back on the podcast. So I'm going to have Barry on soon. But hearing Rosie tell these stories about Michael Jordan and one of the failures in that documentary, there weren't a lot because I thought it was really good. Even for what was a glamour, like Vogue-ish look at Michael Jordan, there was not enough Chicago reporters in it. There were a few, but there weren't enough. The, the, the Steve Rosenblums, the Cheryl Ray Stouts, like there, there should, the Dan Rones, like there should have been more people that were around those teams more off. Jim Rose talking about what was going on with that team. Because Michael had good relationships with those people. He really, really did. By the way, we are brought to you by the fine folks at Mazda of Orland Park. We've been very happy that they have been a part of what we're doing on the podcast. ZoomZoomNation.com, if you are looking to get yourself a, a brand new automobile. It's a unique buying experience for sure. We're also brought to you by David Hochberg. 56david.com is where you can go. If you're refinancing your home or you're looking to buy a home, he's the guy that you want on your side. He helped me out tremendously. And I'm so glad that he's been a a part of the podcast. I hope it continues because I think that he's great. And please help, help me help you. 855-56-DAVID if you want to call him, 56david.com if you just want to check out the website. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and we we moved houses. Like I'm I'm I moved the house of L from Libsyn to Red Circle and I've enjoyed Working with Red Circle so far, it's been a, a, a much truer, more indicative analytic breakdown for me on the numbers of who's listening, how many people are listening, streams, like all of that stuff. I've really enjoyed working with them. So if you're thinking about doing some podcasting, you might want to check them out as a place to upload and send out your podcast to the world. Thanks so much for listening. During this pandemic, I have really come to love what House of L has meant. Like 
it's the place where right now I am happiest is creating this stuff, whether it's the interview stuff that you hear, the special episodes we do, the stuff that Connor and Joe are doing with the baseball podcast. This has been the best thing that's happened this summer. And I appreciate your support. Please rate, subscribe, unsubscribe, and then resubscribe. Write, write a review. Give us five stars. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.